Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. Well, tonight we're going to conclude our series on learning to lament. I know even in the title, many people think, I don't need to learn how to lament. I do it well. Um, But really there is something that is healing in the ability to grieve. And even as we've started this series, I've had a number of people uh, tell me what a help it's been to them in some of the things that they are going through. And so that's encouraging because that's what I hoped would happen um, in these things and as we are going through this. And so these poems here are really helping us to understand some some concepts about grieving. And one of the things that the poet starts off with in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Jerusalem has sinned greatly, and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. And as it starts off with this description, it really is in line with what we've talked about, how the city is being portrayed so that we can have understanding about what's happening. It's being portrayed as a woman, but now this is moving to a place where this woman has greatly sinned. And there's some words that are there. The word unclean has to do with a ceremonially unclean. It's being religiously unclean. And all who honored her despise her for they have all seen her naked. And these descriptions of unclean and of nakedness, it it starts to give us this insight into what the poet is trying to say. And when he says her filthiness clung to the skirts, 
he's talking about a sexual impurity, an adultery. And so this is kind of this picture that is meant to give us insight into what is happening. The, the narrator's telling us early on here that she was unfaithful, that she is getting what she deserved. She didn't consider her future. She was playing the harlot. She uh, was unfaithful to uh, her lover. And it sounds harsh, but we have seen that the tone changes later on, and we're going to get to that in a bit. But you see, the whole of Scripture, especially this book and the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament, is really a narrative about a tribe of people. It is about the Jewish people, the tribe of Israel. And their narrative, as it's uncovering, is really unique because there were lots of tribes at that time. So what makes this tribe unique? What makes this tribe different? You know, why is this tribe better than the other tribes? And, you know, we could say, well, it's because they have the real God. But what was the evidence of this real God, true God, one God? What, what was his declaration to this tribe that would set this people apart from the other people in the world at that time. You see, at the time when this is being written, the tribes that were there were all about conquering. They were all about taking and consuming. It was all about whatever we can conquer, we can empower ourselves, we can gain strength, and if our tribe conquers your tribe, then our God is stronger than your God, and so now we have proof of it because of how we have defeated you. This was the, the concept and the ideology that was taking place in the people at this time. And then you come to, to this tribe, and we start to see that there is a calling for them. At the very core was the belief that they were to be a new kind of tribe and a new kind of people. That they were supposed to be the people through whom all other nations were blessed. That's in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where God says that to Abraham. Blessing other nations was not the goal of the tribes at that time, of the world at that time. This was something foreign. This was something new that God wanted to actually use these people to be a blessing to the other people. When we went through uh, the book of Genesis last year, two years, anyway, we went through it, I remember, not too long ago. And at the beginning, we were talking about why this book was written, who it was written to, and what was the purpose? Why was the Sabbath initiated? And we talked about how, you know, at that time, they were slaves. They had left Egypt, and now they were, they were establishing themselves. And God was saying, you know, you are more than just people for working and making money, that you were created in the image of God, and you need to recognize that. And so there was this pointing them to an understanding that they were more than what they had been. 
And this is an ongoing thing that takes place throughout the Old Testament. God says that he wants them to help the widow. He wants them to help the orphan. He wants them to help those who are foreigners or strangers. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, it says, So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And so here's this idea that this is something that I care about. You need to take care of the poor. You need to help those who are in need, those who are strangers. In fact, in Exodus 22:21, after the Exodus after they have escaped from Egypt. And that's why Exodus is such a crucial part to this tribe's story because it is deliverance from slavery. And so they hear in 22 verse 21 of Exodus, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. And so the narrative of this God, of this tribe, is that they were to be people who cared about those who were weak, those who were enslaved, those who were impoverished, those who were estranged, because they knew what it was like to be that place. God pulled them from there, gave them identity, dignity, and they are supposed to do the same thing to others. So God makes a covenant, an agreement with a man named Abraham, again, unheard of that a God would make an agreement, would bind himself with people at this time. The gods at this time needed to be appeased. You offer sacrifices to them. The gods are angry. They're judging. Whenever something bad happens, it's because the gods are mad at you. And you have to give enough of yourself, of your crops, of your, you know, uh, livestock, even of your children to try and appease this God that you worship. And all of a sudden we come across this God who says, no, I want to make an agreement with you. And this covenant that he makes with Abraham is compared throughout the Old Testament as the covenant between a husband and wife. There is this agreement that is going on, that there is this bond between a husband and a wife. And this bond is similar to that between God and this people. And it's so personal and it's so close and it's so unusual at this time. You know, it's hard for us to see the transition that is taking place because now when we think of God, to think of sacrificing uh, children or people to God, you know, we think, oh man, that's so barbaric. That's so so strange, and to think that that was at one time a normality, right? I mean, you've all seen the pictures of the the Aztecs, you know, or seen, you know, Apocalypto, you know, that movie where they're sacrificing all the people. I mean, it was just this brutal atrocities, and that was normal. And here comes this tribe, And this God who makes an agreement with this people says, I want to bind myself to you like a husband binds himself to a wife. This is the covenant that I want to make to you. Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. 
I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. See, it was his intention to make this covenant with them so that he could use this people to be a light to the Gentiles. Think of Jesus' words. You are the light of the world. What he's really doing is calling them back to their original calling and the covenant he made with them. You are the light of the world. That was what God intended all along. That's what he wants of you, his people. And so... That's why Paul in Ephesians says, in Christ, he's made us one humanity. His purpose was to, to bring us together and help us to be a benefit to those around us. And this is the poets pointing out that Israel has had a troubled relationship with God that Israel has been conquered by Babylon, has been devastated, had been laid waste because they have neglected that relationship. And it's not so much that, well, okay, God's mad at you and so he's judging you now. It's almost this kind of even social economic upheaval that takes place when you start neglecting people and start abusing the poor. Eventually, you're going to have a riotous uprising. People are going to protest. The, the, the things that held you together are going to start to crumble. And we see that actually taking place in Israel's history with Solomon. King David brought the, the tribes together. And then Solomon took them to new heights. But how did he do it? He enslaved his own people and used them to build the temple of God and his own temple. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. The guy was abusive in his just excess. And all of a sudden we see all the things that God said he didn't want to happen are starting to happen. The people are now being enslaved. You know, this was the God who said, I want you to leave a corner of the field unplucked so that the poor can come through and get it and supply their needs. And now here is the king of them saying, I want to enslave you and get you to serve me to build my kingdom and we'll do it in the name of our God. And pretty soon the whole idea of who God is starts to crumble because it's no longer represented well. I think many times that happens even in the Christian world. You know, people hear some things coming out of those in the name of Jesus and they wonder, well, if that's what Jesus is like, I really don't want anything to do with that. This Jesus seems very condemning, seems very just uh, unloving. This Jesus means you have to join this group of people, otherwise he won't accept you. And I don't particularly like that group of people, so I guess I won't be in. And you can fill in the blanks because it changes depending on where you are in the world, who those people are. But the church 
has had a history of being very exclusive, very judgmental, very nose up in the air, we're better than you. Gandhi went to a Christian church, wanted to go and worship, and they said, no, you can't worship here. This is just for the British. And so he turned away and then didn't, you know, he started basically the whole change from India, from Britain, and he said that I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. I think that's telling something. And I think we've heard those kinds of things throughout the time. I, I, I like Jesus, but I don't like this Christianity. And, and so people were not able to see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the nation of Israel any longer because it was so affected by those who were in power and what had happened that that image was now all but gone. And so we see the consequences of that is the de declining of the nation, the decadency that takes place. A lot of people that you know believe that the prophets are actually the first uh, social justice people crying out against the injustice that is taking place and portraying it in such a way to try and get people to see that this is like an adulterous relationship. That's why you have the prophet Hosea who takes a harlot for his wife and God says, well, I still will love her just like you love your wife even though she's unfaithful. And so this picture is not uncommon. This idea of unclean and un, 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 adultery, this is an image that is clear in the minds of the people because it's something that is being represented over and over again. And so we see this nation that God has, has poured out to give him them this law that really is a covenant agreement, has blessed them, pulled them out of slavery, has established them to bless the world. And then we see them as the power starts to take root, they start to take for granted those things. And pretty soon it starts to crumble. And it could be just the infrastructure of those things starts to crumble. It happens in society and you can see so many civilizations that were empowered and great and then crumbled because their integrity was lost. All of a sudden, they started to decline and take advantage of their power, and pretty soon they were abusing it, and pretty soon they neglected really the things that were most important. And I think that's the clear picture of what's happening here. And so here is an important point that I think we need to, to see in this poem as it's being presented, that sometimes... Suffering has nothing to do with what you've done. You get a disease and it's something that wasn't avoidable. You know, my cousin's husband, he had pancreatic cancer and he was a healthy eater, all these things, nothing to do. There are times when suffering happens and it's not your fault and it's no one's fault and it's just part of this world that we're living in. 
But then there are some times when suffering takes place and it is connected to the things that we have done. It is the consequences of the decisions and choices we make. Even like Pat said in that prayer, there are, there are some people who are struggling on the streets because of choices they made. Involving themselves maybe with drugs, alcohol. Then there's some that are on the streets because they have a mental disorder that doesn't allow them to function in society and they're struggling there. So there's sometimes where it's not your fault and then there's sometimes where I am to blame. I'm the one who's responsible for this. And I think it's important to recognize that is there any suffering that I just need to own because I'm guilty? Because I have neglected this area of my life. I have neglected this relationship with my life. I have neglected this relationship with others. I have neglected something that has caused this effect to hurt me. It's good to own that. It's necessary to get that and recognize that this is a part of my story. This is something that I need to recognize. And, and this is something that Israel needed to see. They had to come to a place where they said, you know what? Look who we are. We no longer represent this God who made the covenant with us. We have been unfaithful to that covenant. And no wonder these things have fallen apart. It happens in any relationship like that. And it happens in the church like that. We no longer look anything like Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised if people aren't wanting to be a part of us. Why? Because we no longer look like the one we say we belong to. I don't think people, when they think of a church, they think, oh, churches are the friends of sinners. But that's what they thought of Jesus. No, church is where they judge sinners. Again, not all churches, but this has been a familiar ring to it. And so owning that helps us to recognize there are some things sometimes that we do need to own. But the great thing here is in this, these poems, we aren't left there. We're not just left to this place, oh, she was unfaithful. She, she was, you know, unclean. She didn't consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look on my afflictions, for my enemy has triumphed over me. She didn't stay there. And in chapter 2, verse 13, which we touched on last week, it says, what can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I might comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? And now he calls her the virgin daughter Zion. And this is amazing because the narrator says what the problem is, that she's an adulterer. 
that she's been unfaithful, that she's kind of hoard herself out to, to whatever these things are. She's forsaken who she's supposed to be. But then it transitions. Yeah, you were filthy. Yeah, you were this prostitute. Yeah, you've neglected your lover. But then he sees her as a virgin daughter. And this description is that of, of purity. I don't see you no longer as unclean, but I see you as pure. I don't see what you've done, but I now see you as who you were supposed to be. And it has this resonance. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. There is this sense that I don't see the things that you have done. I see who you are through my eyes. And so now there's the compassion. Virgin daughter of Zion, your wounds are as deep as the sea. You see, now you can have compassion because now this is no longer an unfaithful lover. This is now your precious daughter who's hurting. And God is, through this narrator, helping us to see the transition that takes place from being one who is unclean, impure, to one who's been cleansed. I think one of the big questions that we often ask many times in our lives is, can we begin again? Can we start over? We do it in relationships. Can we just start over? You know, I made some bad mistakes. I, I just want to begin again. We do it in businesses. My business failed. It's closed down. Can I start over again? We do it as parents. Man, I made some mistakes. Boy, I did some things. Man, I, I feel like I've really damaged my children in some areas. Can we begin again? It's a question, I think, all humanity asks is, can we start over? Can we? Do we have the ability to begin or are we forever defined by our past and the mistakes that we've made? Is that going to be the constant in our lives? Is that area of failure? Do you remember that time you did this. Do you remember that time you were unfaithful? Do you remember that time you said this? Do you remember that time you did that? Do you remember that time that this happened? And our life starts to be defined by the mistakes that we've made. And pretty soon we feel like even though we belong to Jesus and we know we're forgiven, we cannot escape the things that we've done from defining us. And we get held into these areas and locked in. Can we begin again? Can the narration change? Can I become someone else? Can I move from this unclean and the filth is cleaning, clinging to my skirts to the virgin daughter, Zion? Can we make a transition? And we see this 
as part of God's narration throughout Scripture, we see he changes the name from Abram to Abraham, from Jacob to Israel. We see Cephas to Peter. see Saul to Paul. There is this changing of name. And so this is what we want to see change in our lives as well. We want to make that change, have the narration move us past. And so I think this then needs to conclude in two ways. One is can you then be the narrator in someone else's life? Can you transition that person's frame of mind from being unclean, filth clinging to their skirts to the virgin daughter? Can you be the narrator that sees them differently, that portrays them differently? Can you be a representative of God who says, you're no longer this, I don't see you this, I see you as the light of the world. That's who you are meant to be. I see you as created in the image of God. That's who you're meant to be. That's who you were created as. Oh, I know that there's uncleanness clinging to your skirts. I know there are things holding on to you, but this is who you are supposed to be. Can we help people see that? Can we speak life into those things in those people's lives? Do we have the ability to help transition them from who they were to who they're supposed to be. And the second part is do we have the ability to see that in ourselves? Can you see the mistakes that you've made and let them be a part of your life, but not what defines your life. You can't ignore them. They happened. He writes about them. No, you were unclean. You didn't consider your future. You're here because of what you did. That's just how it is. But then can you see that you don't have to stay in that place and you can move to another place? Can you not allow the condemnation to hold you captive so that you can't move forward because you can't let go of the past. And so many times guilt is like an anchor in our lives to the past and the things that we've done. And we only see ourselves as that unfaithful, that unclean, we see ourselves ashamed and naked and we can't let go of that memory because it happened. But it doesn't have to define us. It doesn't have to be the last voice. And for healing to take place in our lives, in, in our relationships, there has to be a transition there's a grief for what has happened and for where we are. But then there is a hope that can carry us to where 
we want and need to be. And that has to be a part of that narrative in our lives. We have to be able to see that future as our future. We have to be able to impart healing and receive the healing to help people and to help ourselves to see that the future is still being written with a pen in our hand. And we have the ability to make the past now a testimony. When you think of the Apostle Paul, most of the time your thoughts are, here is a man who did an incredible work in church history. You don't think of, here is a man who persecuted the church. Why don't we think that? Because of the transition and the future he made from where he was to who he became. So what do we want to do with this? You see, these poems are a declaration of all these things. They're a series of images, of pictures. I mean, that's what we have throughout the scriptures, these pictures, these images, to help us grasp hold of, of what is taking place. How do we explain these things? Well, let's give you an image of a husband, a wife, a God, and his people. Let's give you an image of an unfaithful lover and then a person who sees the purity in them again. And it moves us and we wonder, can this be so? And the good news is through Jesus, yes, it can. And yes, it is. And so we start making a new path for ourselves start writing a new future for ourselves, start claiming the intention that God had originally made, the covenant that he had given, that we are to be the light to the world, the light to the Gentiles, that we are to be those who help those who are in need, that we are to be the ones who reach out. Don't forget the stranger, the foreigner, those who are alienated, the orphans, the widows, those who are impoverished, those who are struggling, that we have compassion on people because that's who our God is. Even if they're pagans, Gentiles, whatever they are. There are an alarming amount of young men predominantly who commit suicide, who are struggling in homosexuality. An alarming amount. That struggle is internal, but shouldn't we be the ones reaching out to those people and loving them and letting them know their value? Shouldn't we be the people who are rescuing those who are hurting and broken. We're not validating their choices just like the pagans weren't, we weren't accepting the pagan beliefs, but we are showing compassion to them because we want them to see above their situation that God loves them, and that God would call them, just like he does us, virgin daughter Zion.
it's important to recognize those things. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this time. And Father, I know I spend a lot of time just sitting and thinking about these things. And it's good to be able to talk to them and to be able to talk to them with my friends and my family and to be able to uh, unpack these things. And Lord, the more I unpack Scripture, the more it reveals that your love is better than life. God, that you are good and your mercy endures forever. Father, that in spite of all that Israel did, you love and love and love them. In spite of what we do, you love and love and loved us and continue still. Lord, may we represent you well. May we desire to work these things out. And may we always, Lord, represent you clearly. God, thank you for this time. And bless everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.